This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. We are about to embark on a grueling little schedule here. I'm going to be very grumpy, I'm sure, at the close of this week. You, on the other hand, will be enjoying three hours worth of BOA Audio covering the year in review 2008 in the world of ufology with two of my good friends and amazing minds in the world of today's esoterica nick redfern and greg bishop they are the ufo mystics i'm sure you know of them well multi-time guests on boa audio both tremendous authors and researchers and students of the world of esoterica and ufology and they appear on the program in our first ever true dual guest interview i'll be honest i was a little out of my element at first trying to wrangle and oversee two guests at once, but as you'll hear during the program, we ease into a free-form style that really is quite enjoyable as the process unfolds and turns into kind of a roundtable on the past year in ufology, looking at all the big stories and some of the smaller ones that had big-picture implications in the world of UFO studies. If you're listening to this, it sounds like the plan is going off without a hitch, and that means you're hearing part one around Tuesday afternoon, December 30th. We're going to try and get part two out to you on Friday, January 2nd, so I'll be taking the 31st and 1st off to drink and then recover, and then after that we'll have part two for you at the end of the week. So it's a double guest, double episode here as we close out 2008. Here in part one, we're going to talk about the first six months of the year, We're going to start things out with me essentially lamenting the series of UFO flops that was 2008, and then thankfully Nick and Greg talked me down off the ledge. Then we're going to discuss the big stories and the key events of 2008, chronologically of course, starting with the Stephenville UFO sighting and subsequent mania, the debut of UFO hunters, the alleged UN UFO meeting, yet another UK UFO file release, the Vatican endorsement of aliens, Jeff Peckman and his alien video, the UK UFO flap from this past summer, and the 100th anniversary of the Tunguska event. On top of all that, we'll have remembrances of some influential esoteric names that we lost in 2008. Georgina Bruna, Arthur C. Clarke, and Albert Hoffman. Those three will be memorialized here in Part 1. I'll preview Part 2 for you at the end of the program, so stick around for that. Essentially, it's the second half of 2008, plus looking ahead to 2009 and what may be coming down the pike in Esoterica. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, I hate to break it to you, but I am not going to read both those bios. We'll be here all day. Let me run through their websites, though. That's where you can find out more from them. Nick Redfern, of course, at nickredfern.com. Pretty simple. And Greg Bishop, you can find him at excludedmiddle.com or radiomisterioso.com. 
And let me spell that one for you. R-A-D-I-O-M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O dot com. Radio Mysterioso. And together they form the ufological supergroup UFO Mystic. And you can find that at ufomystic.com. Pretty simple. U-F-O-M-Y-S-T-I-C dot com. Check it out. One of the very best UFO websites on the entire internet. Should be a daily destination for any serious student of ufology. So that's how you can find out more about those guys. Check out their websites. You've heard them on the show before, I'm sure. Go back to the archive if you want to read their bios, or just go to the page where you're listening to this, and the bio should be right there. want to make a couple notes here at the beginning of the show. First, check out the show page for this episode at Ben All of America. It's a little bit more interactive than usual. We've got linkage up to a lot of the stories we're talking about here from the first six months of the year. So if you're listening and you remember the UK UFO file release story or the alleged UN UFO meeting, the Vatican endorsement of aliens, and you want to check out the coverage from when those stories broke earlier in 2008, go to the show page. There's linkage there that'll set you on your way. Also want to throw in a plug here for a book that Nick is a contributor on and is published by a good friend of mine, Greg Taylor, of the Daily Grail. It is called Dark Lord Volume 2. You can find out more about that at dailygrail.com. Fantastic journal-style book almost with a lot of great contributors. Regan Lee from Banal of America is a contributor in the book as well, and Nick Redfern and a number of other great esoteric researchers. So check out Dark Lord Volume 2. Without any further ado, let's dive into 2008 with our guests Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. This dual guest interview was taped on December 17, 2008, the year in ufology, with the UFO mystics, Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, on BOA Audio, Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. Very exciting here, groundbreaking program, even though it's really a rather mundane <laughs> technological advancement. Uh, after 100 episodes, we've finally done a, a double guest interview. We got somebody in Texas, who I'm, I'm sure you know, and somebody in L.A., who I'm sure you know. And we're going to be talking about the year in review in ufology, 2008, the world of UFOs, what happened. Our guests, of course, are the most feared tag team in all of the ufology world. They are the UFO mystics, Greg Bishop, who was here last year with us for 2007's wrap-up, and Nick Redfern, and they're both on at the same time from different states, all it's mystical, if you will. So welcome to the show, guys. Hi, Tim. Hi, Greg. Hi, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Hi, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so like I said, I've never done one of these roundtable-type episodes, so just bear with me and... uh, I'll try and throw it out to one person, and you know, I don't know. We'll just we'll just wing it. As I said to you guys when I sent you the the scorecard, if you will, for what we'd be talking about this year, and and Greg, you might remember last year I was really bullish on on the UFOs and, and the UFO world. I thought 2007 was a breakout year for UFOs, and now here we are, 2008, and uh, I kind of classify it as the year of the flop. A lot of stories that they got a lot of coverage, but they turned out to be ridiculous and awful for the whole field of esoterica. And uh, a lot of stories that became news stories that weren't news stories, like the Edgar Mitchell story. And uh, so it was kind of a year of uh, amazing disappointments, I guess you could say, as far as big events and stuff, aside from the Stephenville, Texas sighting, of course. Because that was, uh, I think that was kind of a carryover, I guess, from 2007, because it happened in the first week of January. Then everything went downhill in 2008. That's just my thoughts. 
Uh, <laughs> I know. I don't think it, I don't, you know what? I don't think it went downhill, really. Um, if you're really, and Nick will probably agree with this totally, if you're really concerned about respectability, didn't really make any difference. It was just disappointing to the UFO and anomalies people, particularly with the Bigfoot thing. Um, and I don't think it made the reputation of people who are interested in UFOs and anomalies any worse than it already was. I thought it was just funny, the Bigfoot thing and the, um, what was the guy with the uh, video? Uh, Peckman? Jeff Peckman. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Now, I, I will say I'm probably being pessimistic, and but I kind of went over it again, uh, the yeah. list, and I was like, maybe... Maybe I'm subliminally being pessimistic, but then it was like, no, but a lot of these stories that I picked out were the ones that everyone was talking about, like the, the, the Blossom Goodchild fiasco, and, and well, uh, you know, it seemed to be cropping up a lot this year. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that happens as well, Tim, is that in the UFO field, a lot of people aren't necessarily conversant with sort of the, the long-term history, and by that I mean that we actually have years like last year when you know a whole range of things seem to be going on different things you know waves of sightings like 52 73 and then after that there's like a big letdown or there's hoaxes or you know it doesn't pan out the way think people think it will and that that's actually you know this year and last year versus the two it hasn't been anything out of the ordinary you know if you look back in the history it does go in kind of peaks and troughs like that where People say, you know, we're on the brink of this, we're on the brink of that, and then next year brings nothing. I think that's that's just the nature of the subject. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've only been in this for a little while, so I guess I have many more years of excitement and then disappointment ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like Nick said, yeah, it does go in waves. And also, interest goes in waves, apparently, with the coverage of um, uh, enigmatic or decent uh uh, sightings, things that are, you know, seem to be really well documented but not well explained. And so that'll kick everybody into, um, into a frenzy of maybe we really should look at this. And then, like Nick said, yeah, well, these last years, a couple of years, especially this year, 2008, um, like Tim said, it was uh, a lot of uh, disappointments and things to laugh at. But yeah, you know, more things will come along. It's, um, yeah, leave it to Nick to give the long view, of course, definitely. All I did was make fun of it. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not ready to eat my gun because it was a lousy year. I'm in the opinion of the same as you. I'm laughing about it. But at the same time, in the big picture, it's kind of strange in a way that there were so many fiascos this year, it seemed. Well, I think, you know, I think maybe to some extent, um, you know, as far as, if you want to call it the paranormal, the 14 world, however you want to term it, in the last couple of years, there's been a bit of a resurgence again. And I think whenever there's a resurgence, the mainstream media gets interested. TV channels rush out, rush out shows and reality series and things like that. And it kind of creates a little bit of a vibe and people come forward with new stories. And, you know, it's as Greg said also, that interest peaks and wanes. And... You know, a few years from now, interest is going to drop off again. And I think what's happening is that it looks like there's a lot going on, but it's because the media is taking an interest and, and noticing it, and people start talking about it, and it kind of spirals. You know, I'm not, I'm quite sure that if the media, for example, hadn't jumped on some of these big UFO cases, there wouldn't be as much UFO interest this year as there has been. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start out uh, with the beginning of 2008, which was. Uh it'll be probably the landmark event of 2008 as far as UFO 
incidents go, and that was the Stephenville, Texas UFO sightings that just became a huge rage in ufology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it kind of amusing, Greg, uh, when we did the 2007 recap, uh, we were sort of thinking that maybe the O'Hare case was going to be the, you know, the big case of this decade. But then, you know, I think we taped it the day after the Stephenville thing. So the iceberg was just sorting, starting to surface then. And I think now, I guess, we'll look back on this decade and maybe see the Stephenville case as the breakout case of, of the last, you know, the aughts, if you will, because that thing just became a huge media sensation. I don't even know where to begin on it, I guess, but we'll start with just how it became so huge. What did you think of that as far as the media reaction to it and the fact that this was one sighting that had serious legs to it? Uh, when, you know, when we look back, it was probably easily a sighting a day in America uh, in the last year so. You know, it's not like UFO sightings are few and far between, but this one was something special about this one. So I guess what made this one so special? Does anyone care to start? <laughs> um, well, there you go, well, Nick. My, All right, you're my, you go ahead. I, I started the last one, so right, I was waiting right. for Nick. <laughs> all right, well, from my perspective, I think the several things that make the, I won't say the sighting, or the, rather the sightings, um, interesting, and that is one of them, the fact that the area, for a while at least, seemed to have a, an absolute concentration of UFO activity. You know, some of the reports were, I guess, more impressive. Others were, you know, the classic lights in the sky type reports. But I think the two things that stood out for me, one that was quite widely reported and which the media picked up on quite rightly as well, was this backtracking and changing of story on the part of the military Mm -hmm. by saying um, that they didn't have aircraft in the area at the time and then suddenly, oh, we've just found out, you know, we had a whole range of aircraft flying around at the time. That, to me, smacks of trying to come up with an explanation. doesn't necessarily mean they know what it was or what it wasn't, but it does sound to me as if somebody was trying to lay their matter to rest in a down-to-earth fashion and which is quite plausible, but I just find it very, very kind of suspicious that it would take a week or more, however long it took, to come to a realization that, hey, we're actually flying all these aircraft around at the same time, you know, that the, the that this case occurred and the media is going wild about, and it took them this long to find out. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing. And I think the other thing, and this may not be relevant, um, <clears throat> But it is something that a number of UFO researchers picked up on, as did the media, was the relatively close proximity of Stephenville to uh, the Crawford Ranch, Bush's Ranch. Now, why on earth or off it aliens would want to visit George Bush's Ranch, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If it was me, I think his ranch would be the last place I'd visit. But, you know, I think that's an intriguing little facet that may mean something, and it may mean actually nothing at all. But I think it's just, you know, like the some of the parts, it's just something that's become part of the Stephenville mystique, if you like, um, and collectively has, has led to a lot of interest in the case, unsurprisingly. And what about you, Greg? What do you what do you think of the whole Stephenville thing? What, what, it seemed to have a lot more legs than than your yeah. average UFO sighting. So what do you think uh, was the, the bug in the bonnet with Stephenville? Well, it's because it went on for a long time. There are a lot of people that saw it. There are a lot of people that saw something that wouldn't be readily explained. There was the the Air Force delayed reaction, as Nick said, and that was publicized. And um, as I was watching, this was playing out a script that has gone on 
in any number of waves or flaps of UFO sightings. I mean, even um, the swamp gas thing in, in Michigan in 1960, whatever it was, the one that Heineck went and investigated. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gerald Ford actually called for hearings on UFOs because of it when he was in Cong- uh, the Senate. So I I think that the, there there's a if you uh, look at uh, books like Richard Thompson not Richard Thompson uh, uh, Keith Thompson's Angels and Aliens, what he describes is a kind of a myth in the making. Not saying myth is it's false, but um, it follows this script. And UFO sighting flaps seem to the ones that have legs seem to follow this script. A lot of people see something, things are unexplained, the Air Force comes in and, and either says something, you know, investigates and or says, well, we had planes flying there, and they do two or three explanations, and this makes everybody suspicious. This is reported in the news, and um, that gets people's attention, not just lights in the sky, but the fact that officialdom is uh, involved with it. Um, as for the uh, O'Hare thing, um, I think the reason that did so well is because it was at a major airport. Um, apparently, trained people saw something strange there, uh, and um, is probably slow news at the New Year, uh, like it was in, at, at almost any New Year, because um, nobody's doing anything. They're all off on a holiday. Uh, and um, the, the interesting thing about that is, well, not interesting, actually, the, the best study of it was done by, who was it, Peter Sturrock? They put out a big report on it. It was like 200-something pages. It um, uh, wasn't Sturrock. It was a guy who runs the um, the organization that deals with pilot sightings because he's a pilot and he has a bunch of pilots and former pilots on his board. Anyway, they did this 200-something page report, and they concluded that something strange happened, but nobody knows what it was. Um, and it can't be explained as something normal, which is the, you know, that's the, that's the conclusion to any, I guess, good UFO story is that it remained unexplainable. Yeah. What did you think of the media coverage, you know, from a critical perspective, I guess you could say, plus, minus, negative? Were you unhappy with how they, they handled the whole Stephenville thing, or do you think that, you know, they overblew it and just sort of wrote it for ratings and really didn't care about actually getting to the bottom of it? Next turn. Ahead, well, I'd agree, with what, I'd agree with what Greg just said, uh, Tim, but I would add to your, your second part of the question that I think when you, you, know, you look at media coverage in general, it's usually pretty dismissive or, you know, kind of gently pokes fun in a, you know, in a, in a poking fun way, basically. <laughs> um, but I think, I think with Stephenville, it was a little bit different because even though, you know, the media didn't necessarily endorse the idea that this whatever happened to Stephen Bill was alien. It's like Greg said, they did realize that the Air Force did this flip-flop and there were credible witnesses. And I think from that perspective, at least, they were intrigued by it. You know, and it may well have been the case that if, even if it had just been the witnesses alone, they might not have given it the coverage they, they did. But when they began to realize that the military was stonewalling and changing stories, that is necessarily going to get interest picked up. And I think that's, you know, when you look at the collective news stories and radio reports and TV, etc., that were published at the time, I think it did give like a, a fair degree of respectability to the subject without kind of, you know, overplaying the, the ET angle. It was just, this is a weird UFO incident, yeah. and they're reporting on it. So. That has happened recently. There's, it seems in the last couple of years has been, there's been the snickering, but not as much, and also... 
they don't immediately run to little green men seen again and you know over whatever they just deal with what happened and what people are saying not not uh, adding to the circus by 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 bringing in the the um you know the 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 mainstays of the of making fun of these kinds of stories so yeah i mean you know and when i think that peter jennings special i think that kind of lent some a little bit of credence to it when Peter, somebody of you know, of all people, Peter Jennings uh, suddenly takes it seriously. Yeah. Now speaking of the circus, now what did you think of Ufology's reaction to the Stephenville sightings? Because I've heard various stories about you know, there were obviously good people investigating it, but then I've heard other stories about just how it kind of became a circus in and of itself, with a lot of uh, turf wars and stuff breaking out over Stephenville. And uh, I also noticed, you know, just uh, from following the news, that every everybody and their brother was jumping on the Stephenville story because it was so hot. So I guess, you know, what did you think of Ufology's reaction? They should have enough time at this point to be able to handle a massive case. Did you think they, you know, when they slapped it up to DEFCON 1 because Stephenville broke through into the mainstream, did they do a good job of handling it or did they blow it? What? Turf, turf wars in Ufology, surely <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I'll just run into this briefly, um, and if Greg wants to comment as well. Um, I think, you know, ufology is ufology, and, I, you know, I've seen people with, who jealously guard their filing cabinets. This is my case. This is my story. And there are others who are quite open and willing to share their information because they want to get the truth out or understand what the truth is, at least. And I think, you know, you can apply that to pretty much any UFO case, whether it's you know, Roswell, Aztec, you know, you name it. What I can say from my own personal perspective is living here in, in Dallas is that the Dallas-Fort Worth MUFON group did a, a, a really good in-depth investigation of the case and handled themselves very professionally and went down to the area and interviewed people and, and went about it the right way. And, you know, and, and I can say for certain, you know, that if there was any circus going on, they weren't a part of it. But I think... When anything like this happens in a particular area, you always get an atmosphere of like the circus angle developing through nobody's fault. It's just, you know, one of those things where it almost becomes like a carnival atmosphere, I think, in the aftermath. The media turns up and, you know, everybody's running around town trying to interview people. And, yeah. You know, that's, that's just life, I think. What about you, Greg? How do you think ufology handled the Stephenville story? Well, I agree with Nick. I mean, they tried to be respectable about it, and yeah, there's always crazy elements that want to make a name for themselves and get their names in the paper and get quoted as much as possible. But as Nick was saying that, I was thinking, yes, they went out and handled themselves very professionally. Yes, they did the work that they wanted to do, and um, after all that, uh, what happened? Nothing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you, you know, they they don't have an answer. They've just gathered more data. And I don't know how they're looking at the data, although I did have a chance to talk to uh, James Carrion, who's the head of MUFON now, younger guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, and he seems, you know, unlike other people that have been running MUFON the last, you know, in, in it, throughout its history, he seems to be open to weird explanations, to alternate explanations, to mining the database and looking for patterns instead of just collecting a bunch of stuff and, and saying, I wonder what planet these people came from, or whatever it is. Um, he seems to be more open. And that, that gives me some hope for MUFON. I mean, I, I hope it's well-placed. Yeah, and kind of like what you were saying about 
how at the end of the day nothing really came out of this. That's you know that's kind of the general feeling I get in a way about the whole Stephenville thing. And I know we've already spent like 20 minutes talking about it, and we're going to move on to some other stuff now, obviously. But I feel sort of nonplussed about the whole thing. And after a while, I sort of tuned out because I had a feeling, you know, that this was just another UFO sighting, and I don't feel like that it's crossing the barrier into anything else. No, it hasn't. There's one interesting aspect of it, and I don't know if it was Linda Howe or somebody that was dealing with it, but um, there were people with, like, you know, strange people wandering around their property and looking in their windows and weird phone calls and all that. So, I mean, it even went further into the the uh, standard flap kind of scenario, which was, I guess, laid down with the Mothman thing and, and maybe before that. All right, let's wrap up the Stephenville talk. Is there anything else we should really talk about? I feel like this isn't the last we're going to see of Stephenville, and, and like I said, I think it'll end up being the signature case of, of this decade unless something major breaks in the next uh, year or two. So uh, I'm sure that this won't be the last we've seen of Stephenville, correct? Oh, yeah, I'm sure a few snippets and things are going to come out here and there, and possibly stuff maybe through the Freedom of Information Act. I know a few people are still following that path you know, with the military, so possibly something could come there. Yeah, and I'm sure there'll be a book eventually, and, and uh, you know, an expert will emerge. All right, now, uh, one of the other events, actually, that happened sort of on the same date as the Stephenville thing, at least as far as my crooked timeline is, uh, one that I want to ask Nick about, because he's from the U.K., and this is the Southampton UFO Group Folding. Is this just another example of the sort of changing landscape of ufology, where the groups aren't really what is where it's at anymore, I guess, and it's sort of more of an online-type world, and... and I don't know, the, the groupiness is, seems like it's kind of uh, simmering down. What do you think? You know, I think you can look at it two ways, Tim. I mean, on the one hand, you can say, oh, my God, a group shut down, ufology is folding. Or you can simply look at it from the perspective that, you know, there's a lot of UFO groups out there, and running a group can be a tough time, you know, when you've got to <clears throat> rent a place out and get people in and deal with, the, you know, the corporate and the you know, the, the paperwork side of things as well. And sometimes, you know, I know from experience, having seen things behind the scenes, that often UFO groups fold, not because of a lack of interest, but because everything's put on the shoulders of one person to run the group, and they just get tired of it. Now, I'm not saying that's the case there, because I, I don't know, but I do know that has happened. Um, and I don't think we should always blame, you know, changes in the subject or the subject dropping off for the fact that a group closes. What I would say, however, is that I think there's no doubt that certainly, you know, since the Internet age began more than a decade ago, that the nature of the UFO research community has changed to a significant degree. And I think it's changed for a good, in a good sense, in the sense that, you know, being online, having access to instant information, etc., etc., that's great. Um, you know, we can do podcasts, whatever we want. People can just download it and listen to it. You know, they haven't got to make a long trek to the local bookshop to, you know, get the latest issue of Flying Saucer Weekly or whatever the yeah. whatever it's called. Um, that's a good thing. Now, I think a lot of the old guard in the subject kind of are a bit alarmed by the fact that, to a great extent, the old days are gone. Now... For me, my answer to that is, well, too bad. You know, we have to move with the times, and we also have to follow those paths that may be more beneficial to giving us the answers and perhaps ac instant access to information, the net, etc. 
is the way forward rather than, you know, everybody sitting in the audiences at conferences and etc. But then again, I understand that for many people, they enjoy the social aspect of ufology as well, of getting together and, you know, having a beer at the end of the conference and hanging out. I enjoy doing that. And some conferences, like Ryan Wood's conference, for example, Ryan always gets a good audience every year. Other conferences are struggling. So I don't think it's necessarily ufology as a whole that is affected if a group closes or somebody's conference figures are down. I think it's just, it's sort of a very sort of fragmentary community right now, which can go in different directions and different splinters and some sticking to the quaint old ideas, some bowing out and others just forging ahead into the future. All right. All right. Do you have anything you want to contribute to that, Greg, as far as, you know, what you think, uh, you know, the landscape of the way people handle ufology goes? Well, I, uh, <laughs> as happens so often, I agree with what Nick said. Not much to add to it except that, yeah, right, too bad. Too bad if things are changing, but things change and you have to change with them if you want to move forward. Um, I think that, yeah, it's nice to meet with people and all that, but it, um, it's also, and, you know, meet somebody, an author that you, you know, that you've read his or her book and you want to talk to them directly and ask them a question. That's wonderful. But you can also do that online. And, um, the other thing is that, I, I just read um, that uh, the last quote in the uh, article about the Southampton group shutting down. One of the members said, "I know there's life out there in out there in the universe, and I want some proof of it." Well, that I, I think he's going about it the wrong way in, to begin with, and um, the fact that the internet has taken over the the UFO subject pretty much. Um, I think there's even online um, conferences now. Uh, is 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 a good thing because I think UFO groups and people who are interested have to come to an understanding of what's going on first before they come to an explanation. They're looking for the answer, and I don't think there is a the answer. There's a way of looking at it, and that way of looking at it may be part of the the you know the answer if you want to call it your your attitude, your mindset. I know that's kind of an all-inclusive thing to say, but uh, this is what I was thinking as as Nick was talking. That's that's great. That's what we that's what we have you on for, Greg. These, <laughs> is these very uh, uh, hard to elucidate answers that I like. That I always have takes me a while to wrap my mind. Sometimes around. it's hard for me to elucidate. <laughs> now, uh, just, as a, just as a quick aside, sure. Yeah, if I just quickly say something. I mean, there's people who come to euphemistic that me and Greg do. You know, we're good friends, and uh, you know, we chat online occasionally, but we probably only see each other like two or three times a year. If that. Once a month, if that. Yeah. Um, and yet it doesn't prevent us, hopefully, providing good information and a good interaction with the people who come to the site and make comments. It's just, it's a different way of doing it to what happened 20 years ago. So. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, of the people uh, who I've had on my show, I, can, I think you, uh, Nick, Greg, and Kimball, and maybe Marie Jones are the only people I've ever actually met uh, outside of conferences and stuff like that, yeah. so... You know, it's a weird world, but it uh, works for me. All right, we're going to touch on some people here who passed away during 2008, and uh, we're not going to, probably not going to, I know we're not going to get to all the all the researchers that passed away in 2008, but we're going to touch on some of the ones that were big names or influential uh, figures in various fields and stuff that, that crossed my radar here as I was looking over 2008. And uh, the one I wanted to mention first uh, was obviously chronologically, and that's uh, Georgina Bruna. And you guys mentioned this on UFO Mystic. Uh, I know Nick posted it uh, on January 25th. 
And I'll, I'll confess to, to being a little behind the times in a way. Uh, Georgina Bruno was definitely before my time. So I guess talk a little bit about her contribution to the field of esoterica, ufology, and, uh, you know, why, why we lost a, a key figure in the field. Yeah, Georgina, actually, Georgina, I knew Georgina quite well. Um, Georgina lived in uh, London, and um, she was sort of very big up on the on London social scene and organizing parties and functions and that sort of thing. And um, she took a, developed a deep interest in the whole Rendlesham Forest case, the events of December 1980, when uh, <clears throat> a series of UFO activity occurred at the near the joint Royal Air Force Bentwaters Woodbridge bases on the east coast of England, which has been the subject of several books and in some respects, uh, whether rightly or wrongly, people have termed it the British Roswell. Um, Larry Warren and Peter Robbins wrote a book, Left at Eastgate, uh, Jenny Randall's uh, one called Sky Crash, various other books, and Georgina wrote a book called You Can't Tell the People, which was basically her own study of Rendlesham, um, looking at it, I guess, you know, sort of 25 years, I think, after it happened. I think her book was published around 2000. So although she was a newcomer, she had like a fresh approach in the sense that she was delving into something for the first time and, you know, trying to make some sense of it. And her book's a good, I enjoyed her book. It, it uh, uncovered a lot of new material and opened new doors as far as the case is concerned. And she was she was quite a big force on the British UFO scene in the latter part of the 90s, spoke at various events and, you know, wrote for things like UFO magazine, Graham Bursall's UFO magazine. Mm -hmm. And whenever I went to London and, you know, I was at a conference, she would always be there and, you know, always happy and smiling. It's just, you know, just a tragedy that, that she passed away. She, you know, as well as being a you know, a researcher who put out a book that a lot of people are going to remember. She was a, a nice person as well, you know. So it's a, it was just a tragedy, really, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's that's what we're doing here. We're remembering uh, the people we lost and, and uh, the key events and stuff like that here for 2008. On a more uplifting note, I think, and I hope, uh, we'll talk about the debut of UFO Hunters on the History Channel, which is probably one of the most mainstream UFO programs we've seen in quite a while, I think. Uh, the sort of UFO files were big on History Channel. I don't know if they're still around or not, but they kind of always flew under the radar. But uh, UFO Hunters kind of uh, raised the public profile of UFOs and, and tried to, I think, get onto that ghost hunter craze. I'm sure by now, uh, well, I hope uh, you guys have at least seen one episode or something like that, or we can talk a little bit about what what that means for ufology and stuff, that the UFO world has a, a pretty big, fairly mainstream basic cable show, which is, when you actually put it that way, it sounds kind of uh, <laughs> bottom of the barrel, but it's good for UFOs and UFO research uh, that, we're, that we're breaking into the basic cable and, and getting some street cred. So uh, we'll go to Greg first. What do you think of UFO hunters? Uh, it's kind of established itself. It's not going anywhere, it seems, for a little while. Uh, well, in my honest opinions, when I watch it, most of the time I shut it off in the first 10 minutes. The reason being is because they're going over stuff that I already knew. And this is just me. Okay. But that's fine. They're going over stuff that I already knew in a way that's not really that new to me. Um, on the other hand, like you said, it gives a high profile to ufology. Maybe it'll get... <coughs> Uh, people interested who weren't interested before thinking, yes, well, maybe there is something here and I should look into it. And maybe it's more important than just, you know, hearing it on the news once in a while. 
and that way it pulls more people in and maybe even somebody you know a new person somebody that's somebody that's 20 years old or somebody that's 80 years old that suddenly goes hey wait a second after reading a couple of these books or talking to a few people and they come up with a new way to look at things which you know I haven't been able to come up with and nobody I know has um, and that's the value of it is just is the publicity like you said um, there's a lot of things I do differently in it, but uh, you know, when I get a UFO program, then I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it the way I want and see if it works. Uh, the problem is, it probably won't be you know that accessible to as many people. I think that's what they're trying to do is make it. You know, that's what a popular show does. It's accessible to the largest amount of people um, in a way that you know challenges them a bit, but also you know reassures them that they. The, the the viewer that they you know that they've got a handle on what's going on and have, um, and they're using that formula the, the show is using that formula to tell you something about tell you something you already know a little bit about and then maybe let you in on a secret or two or something that you didn't know and I, I think that's that's why it's doing well I don't know what happened to that other UFO hunter show that debuted on the other whatever the other station was the exact same day they were both called UFO hunters. Remember that? Yeah, I, I, there was quite a controversy about that at the time, but I think uh, from what I heard, it was sort of a one-off pilot or something like that. But uh, oh, okay, yeah, really there, was, there was kind of a kind of a fight in between with, between the two stations or two two networks or two production companies about who was going to be called UFO Hunters. But it looks like the Bill Burns UFO magazine uh, uh, outfit won out. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Nick? What do you think? Well, you know, I think the. The nature of shows, whether it's UFO hunters or, or you know any show on the paranormal today, it, <clears throat> excuse me, the the whole approach that any of these shows have to take today, at least, is completely different to say 10, 15, 20 years ago when you had a lot of perhaps recreations, brief recreations, and a lot of head and shoulder interviews in the studio. I think today, you know, it's. It, TV basically is reality TV. You know, pretty much. If it's not a um, you know a show like Law and Order, DSI, it's reality TV. And I think if you're going to do a TV show on UFOs, then for the most part, the TV channels are instantly going to say it's got to be reality TV based. You know, it's got to be interactive. It's got to be traveling around. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, I don't actually have a problem with that. Um, I think but we have to be aware that all UFO programs aren't necessarily being made for UFO researchers. They're being made for the, for the, general, for the general public. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, as researchers, we think, well, as Greg said, you know, quite rightly, maybe this show or that show, we would have done it differently. But then I suppose, you know, we have to look at it from the producer, director, writer, and more importantly, the channel's perspective that, hey, how can we get people, drag people in to watch this? Yeah. You know, um, it's like a lot of shows. Okay, well, let's get a Jeep. Let's go to a interesting location. Let's get a hot chick on the shoot as well. Nice. And I'll, I'll sign go. me up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's nothing wrong, with, nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, some people kind of get a little bit uppity when the UFO subject's portrayed that way. But I think also we have to, as I said, we have to realise that's just the nature of TV today. If it's not done that way, it doesn't get aired, it doesn't get made even. Absolutely, and and just to get on my soapbox here for a minute, I respect Greg's take, obviously, and mm -hmm. and uh, 
I like the way he handled it because, you know, he's just being honest, and, and I'll be the same way. I don't even watch UFO Hunters. I don't watch, like, any UFO shows on TV. Like, when I walk away from the computer, I don't want to hear those three letters uh, at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's just the way it is, you know. I'll uh, Give me ESPN. I don't care about UFOs. But, you know, it's one thing to be like that and be like Greg is, you know, but it's another thing to, you know, get on their soapbox or get on your soapbox and, and like, rail on the show because in the end of the day, you know, like the expression says, uh, a rising tide lifts all ships. It's good for everybody if there's a show like this on, even if we don't really uh, aren't entertained by it. And yeah, well, that was the point I was trying to make, and you put it much better. Uh, I'm glad that there's publicity for it, and I'm glad if it draws more people in. And like Nick said, I don't care if they have to do it in reality. Some reality shows are great, um, and they're interesting to me. It's just that, you know, what if they did a reality show about, whatever, I don't know, stamp collecting or something. All the stamp collectors would watch it and have all kinds of horrible things to say about it. However, the people that weren't in the stamp collecting industry, uh, uh, hobby might say, hey, wait, I didn't know that they issued a, you know, a stamp with, you know, Bozo the Clown on it in 1958 or whatever. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just, it might bring, bring more people into stamp collecting and, and keep it going and, and uh, uh, evolve it, you know, the, the UFO study and the anomaly study needs to evolve, and we're here at a point where the study of, uh, of uh, anomalies, I think, are evolving. I mean, it, it's exciting me. I, I, I love it when I see a new book where something new is being said. Mac Tony's book is going to be like that when he gets it out, the uh, crypto-terrestrial book. Absolutely. All right. Let's move on to the next one. And this was an event, I think it was debunked, but I'm not sure. And it kind of got some legs for a little while in the UFO community. And this was the alleged UN UFO meeting. And I guess uh, I'll just ask if uh, either of you guys looked into this at all. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was uh, a lot a lot of smoke but no fire or something along those lines or even just outright hokum. But uh, it was kind of a big story at the beginning of the year a little bit. <clears throat> Uh, and I'll turn this one over to Nick. What do you think of this? Uh, did you uh, look at that at all? Well, I'll be honest with you, Tim. I actually didn't investigate it. The reason <laughs> I didn't was that I followed the story when it was published on various um, news groups that I'm on and things like mm -hmm. that. And pretty quickly, you know, even if there was something to it, pretty quickly problems surfaced in the story. And, you know, if you're new to the subject, it's kind of, wow, you know, well, maybe... There's something to it, but, you know, without wanting to try and sound <laughs> too jaded or cynical, you know, time and again I've heard stories, oh, there's been a high-level meeting, oh, the, tr the truth's coming next, you know, six months' time there's going to be a meeting and the world's going to be told the truth. Yeah. You know, I'm sure, well, as I know, Greg can also, you know, relate countless stories when the truth is supposed to be coming and when, you know, the, the secret's going to be revealed and this person was briefed and that person was briefed. And, you know, it's, it's who knows? I mean, you know, all this story about presidents being briefed when they get elected, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But like the UN thing, it starts up as something interesting, problems surface, it goes away, and then another year down the line, another conspiratorial, tantalizing developments 
kicks off again. Absolutely. And we yeah. do the same, we go down the same route again. Yeah, I had the same reaction to the, you don't have to apologize because. <laughs> oh, I wasn't apologizing. Apolo- no, 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 for, for, for being cynical or whatever because I, I, oh, I, I had the same reaction uh, when I read the story and then sort of followed it for a few days and then I was like, oh, no, thank you. Uh, I'm all set. But uh, I'm sure Greg, I have a feeling that Greg probably had kind of the same reaction. But what did you think of the UN UFO meeting that was alleged to have happened in February or so? Oh, Tim, you're so cynical already. You've already <laughs> only been this for like, what, three or four years, and you're already totally cynical. <laughs> means you're smart. Um, I took a look at that, and the first thing I saw from that was the story came from Mike Asala, which meant I didn't have any reason to look at it anymore. <laughs> oh, it's biting. I love it. Well, you know what? I, I, he's a nice guy. He's a very civilized, nice person. However, um, I got in an on, online you know, discussion with him once when Project Beta came out, and he was saying, well, how do you know this and how do you know that? And I said, well, because I went and talked to the people and looked it up and cross-referenced everything, and had, you know, and if two or three people told me the same thing, I included it in the story. And he, he said, well, what does that prove? And I said, well, that proves that I, I did the best I could to try and get uh, you know, a, a, a story out uh, that with as much support as I could. And his, his answer, as far as I remember, was, well, people have problems with my kind of uh, with my method of research because it doesn't rely on, on verifiable evidence or, or, or corroborated testimony. And I said, I was thinking, wow, he actually admitted that? <laughs> He, he said that in a public forum on UFO Update, so I, th- I thought, well, I guess I can't really take anything he says very seriously anymore. And since he was the the main, you know, at least the first uh, conduit, as far as I could tell, for that information, I didn't really feel I should follow it. And also, I read a bit of it and said, you know, sources have said, like, what sources? What sources? Where do these come from? Why did they tell you? Was it an anonymous email? What? And uh, it does... It, it, like like Nick said, it's you know the exopolitics people keep saying, oh, it's around the corner, it's around the corner. They've been saying that before they were called exopolitics people. They've been saying that since the fifties. Yeah. You know, every once in a while, I hear somebody say that, and I say, why is this any different than it was in you know two thousand one or ninety five or or seventy seven or fifty six? How is it how is it different this time? And you know their answer, their answer is always well these people are more reliable and you know they've told me stuff in the past that have come true and it's like well look at the evidence now it's still nothing has happened it's like I think it's because the government really doesn't know exactly what it's dealing with and there's nothing to reveal the, the revelation is they don't know what the hell's going on all they know is that weird things happen and they can't control it so why disclose that I've, I've said that many 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 times yeah uh, yeah it was uh. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, uh, it turned out to be a non-story in a year of non-stories, and uh, that's sort of like the first of many that we'll kind of touch on here that that sounded like something, and then you know, turned out to be nothing—a lot of smoke and mirrors. Yeah, I didn't mean to be harsh on Michael Sullivan, but just that one quote from him—I was just thinking, why should I rely on anything he says now? If he if he just takes what he thinks is good and 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 puts it out as the truth, that's that's that doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah, hey, I have no problem. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) The next event started out as sort of a rumor and never really got going, and uh, I think we can flash right by this one fairly quickly, and that was the Steven Spielberg launching an online paranormal community that never ended up happening. It was supposed to happen in the summertime. Uh, But it's kind of – I've noticed – 
I don't really know what, what angle really to take on this story, but I will say that I've noticed that in the last uh, year or so, uh, there seems to be an attempt to sort of harness the online paranormal community. And I know I've seen elements of that, and then I've heard other things behind the scenes, and people have contacted me and tried to work with me on, you know, uh, trying to, to rope in and, and crystallize this online paranormal community. So I guess we'll start here. Why do you think that didn't even happen? I mean, it could have been a money issue for all we know, but but let's well, speculate. I mean, one reason could be that, you know, when the story started, that it was just blown out of proportion. You know, that's, I mean, ufology is infamous or famous, however you want to put it. I think infamous for, is probably. <laughs> yeah, you know, for for listening to rumors and blowing something up hugely. Next year, there's going to be a big revelation. Tomorrow, the government's going to come out with the truth. You know, it could just be the entertainment equivalent of that. You know, just something that just got blown up out of proportion and, or maybe some, you know, there was some, however much an element of truth to it and it just fell apart. You know, that's just life. I don't think that necessarily has anything to do with it specifically being related to UFOs. It could be for whatever reason, something just didn't come together. Yeah, well, rumors start like that. I, I think I posted that because the, the first thing I thought of is, oh, great, they're going to mine the people's personal uh, experiences for movie and TV ideas. Yeah, I do remember something like that. Yeah, And was... uh, maybe that was why it didn't get off the ground because people kind of shied away from it for that because, you know, there was probably something that said, you know, all your stories now become the property of Amblin Entertainment, blah, blah, blah. But, like Nick said, it probably was just a rumor that come, came came out of Spielberg's office and then it got blown in, out of proportion. Um, you know, the, the, look at trade rumors in baseball. I mean, the, the, somebody's being traded and somebody's not being traded within hours. Yeah. And people are, you know, uh, celebrating or, or getting angry or whatever, <laughs> something that hasn't even happened yet and that's just a rumor and there, there isn't even, the ink isn't not dry, the ink hasn't even been put on the paper yet and people are already making conclusions about it. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and to sort of look at the overarching theme of this paranormal community, I think it's too disparate right now anyway online to really harness it in any sort of way like that, you know what I mean? Like I've been a part of other paranormal communities that were sort of like a paranormal type MySpace and it never really got going, it seemed like. Uh, it's very clickish online. It's hard for a lot of groups to get together or different sort of genres. Yeah, well, I'll go to, I'll go to like, Michael Heiser's site, and he's a dyed-in-the-wool um, religious interpretation of ufology and UFO phenomenon. And, uh, you know, to his credit, he'll, he'll discuss things with me from his point of view, and I'll discuss it from my point of view, and we won't. We don't get at each other's throats, and that that's the good part of the online community. But like you said, the the bad part are are people for the anonymity of sitting behind their computers anonymously online sniping at people. Yeah, yeah, and that's been going on since you know the online world started. And then yeah. when you add in, you know, if I, let's say you want to start up a paranormal uh, MySpace, you know, next thing you know, you get six UFO people, and and you know the the two Bigfoot people you had in the in the in the organization are going to bail, and then you know, and you over the Bigfoot people don't want anything to do with it, and the, forget about the nine eleven people because they don't want nothing to do with UFOs. So it's like, you know, I don't know if you could ever harness all these people together into one cohesive sort of organization, and and, and probably uh, rightfully so, I guess, because it's hard. I don't to, see why you have to. Yeah, I mean, if you want ideas 
for movies or TV shows, just go to these forums yourself and <laughs> anonymously surf them. You've got, and I'm sure I'm, I know that happens. You know, you don't need to organize it. In fact, it's the bad thing that, like you say, it's a it's bad thing to organize it because it it just it de degenerates into chaos and clickishness and all that. Why not just um, vacuum up the ideas that are good, or you know, make your own education by by reading people's comments and seeing who seems to have the best. Uh, most uh, long view of things and least least dogmatic, I guess. Okay. Uh, Nick, do you want to add anything here? Or should we move on to the next? No, not really. Greg, I would pretty much identically agree with what Greg. <laughs> 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 uh, so, so what can we expect to, to happen next? Will we, I, I've never seen them. Have you ever seen them? No, I haven't. Yeah. Not even a UFO. Yeah, I, I would like. I would like to, you know, see one. Well, well it would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, now that you ask, yeah. if, the, uh, if there is this contact and a delegation of these extraterrestrial beings wanted to meet with an earthly delegation, right. would you be willing to be part of that delegation? Well, I... Uh, First contact. I... You're listening to Banal of America Audio. You know, I, I kind of got my hands full with T-Ball this summer. <laughs> uh, but, you know, call me. All right, now we move on to the next noteworthy uh, passing of 2008, and that's Arthur C. Clarke. And I know uh, both of you guys are real students of the history of ufology and the history of, of this whole strange genre, and just had Stan Friedman on for an outstanding and amazing uh, fourth annual holiday special here for us that by now people will already have heard. And we touched a little bit on Stan's feud with Isaac Asimov, but in his book he also talks about Arthur C. Clarke and sort of the I don't want to say, I guess I will, negative influence on ufology that, that some of his stuff that he put forward had. But, it all, you know, he was also a forward thinker and inspired a lot of people. So I guess let's just talk about Arthur C. Clarke and his role in the ufology world, because he did have a lot to say about it, and most of the time it wasn't very, you know, uh, uplifting. Well, I mean, I'm not the world's biggest sci-fi fan, I'll admit that. But I do know that, you know, Arthur C. Clarke... I think I think where he kind of hit home from, from friends I know who are into sci-fi, I know several of them have said words to the effect that they liked his work because it kind of was like a grounded sci-fi. You know, he was talking about colonizing, put bases on the moon, you know, colonizing Mars or terraforming, things that weren't that too far out and were sort of in the near future, if you like, in some respects. And I think... In that respect, at least, he he got people interested in the idea that, hey, maybe all this sort of stuff isn't as far out as it seems. And he did have some interesting ideas and, and theories. I think you're quite right that with respect to the UFO field, why there was an antagonism is that because, although ironically he wrote a lot about outer space and alien visitations and alien encounters, he actually wasn't really enamored by the whole UFO scene. Now, you know, which which actually isn't a problem. I mean, you know, you can write creative fiction and at the same time think an aspect of it is complete nonsense, <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're honest about it. Um, and I think from my perspective, you know, if, if there's a famous author who disagrees with me vehemently about a subject, well, my view is, well, well, so what? You know, <laughs> it's like, I'll speak one, you know, wouldn't deter me from doing things because somebody disagreed with me. Um, you know, 
people disagree over everything, over what restaurants to go to on a Friday night. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't... I don't get kind of what I'm trying to say. I don't get all sort of worked up and bent out of shape by the fact that somebody might proclaim that UFOs don't exist. You know, it won't stop me researching, and if I find evidence to the contrary, I'll show it to them. So. Yeah, there you go. And that's a, that's the you know, if I ever had a run-in with Arthur C. Clarke, which I certainly never did, I never knew the man. But if we disagreed on something, you know, I'm not going to lose sleep over the fact that he disagrees with me. That's that's just how it goes. Yeah. And what about you, Greg? You've, uh, you're a big student of the history of ufology, and I'm sure you've probably read some of the stuff that Clark might have said about UFOs and stuff like that. What do you, where do you, where do you fall on all that? Well, my impression of Clark is that he was, he kind of wanted to think that there was something going on there, but nobody ever convinced him conclusively, and that was a source of frustration. <clears throat> what a lot of people forget is that he used to have a show, I think, in the, or at least he lent his name to a show in the, I think it was the 80s, called Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. And he did deal with, um, you know, anomalies, and not just UFOs, but Bigfoot, and Loch Ness Monster, Crystal Skulls, etc. So I, I think he was interested in, in, in anomalies um, in as much as what they could teach us about what there was left to know and how we should, uh, you know, not get so arrogant as to think that we knew everything about the world and the universe already. And um, he looked to UFOs. The subject of UFOs is just an extension of that. You know, show me something that that uh, I can I can get a handle on. And, and you know, no total disrespect for you to ufology, but. Uh, a lot of people involved in it have already made their minds up and they're looking, you know, they're, they're the barest amount of so-called proof will convince them, but it's not going to convince somebody grounded in science and, and, and particularly the general public, at least the, uh, the, the science educated part, <clears throat> the, the, the part that are intelligent enough to know what, what science can and cannot do. So, you know, I, I don't think that uh, Arthur C. Clarke was against the UFO subject. I think he was more against how, people went about looking at it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read his stuff when I was in <clears throat> in uh, junior high school. I was a huge Arthur C. Clarke fan, and then I stopped reading sci-fi. But that stuff has stayed with me, that he was basically a very early futurist. I think we're all set on that one, so we'll, we'll just jump to the next topic, and that is uh, the one that we've uh, tasked Greg with handling, and that's another passing here from 2008, Albert Hoffman. Greg, you wrote a little piece here uh, on UFO Mystic about Albert Hoffman's passing in late April, April 29th or so. So I guess talk a little bit about Alfred Hoffman and his influence on esoterica. Well, it, you know, it, it would seem strange that somebody would put up a, uh, a post on a UFO blog about Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of, of LSD. Um, However, um, because of the large scope of uh, things that which I believe enter into the esoteric, um, altered states of mind is one of them. Now, a lot of people, of course, well, the first thing they'd say would be, "Well, you're high. How do you, you know? What difference does that make? Um, why should we even listen to that? Uh, why should we listen to people that are on drugs?" And um, Maybe not so much with acid, but um, well, maybe with it too. I mean, there's been there's been things where people have had sort of psychic experience while on while on while under the influence of uh, LSD, and, and later found out that there's you know independent corroboration for it. There is, of course, that uh, study with DMT with um, uh, Doctor. What was it, Nick? Rick Strassman. 
Strassman, yeah, um, where people had uh, what were basically abduction experiences under the influence of the of DMT, which is another psychoactive drug. And for that reason, I think that um, uh, Hoffman, apart from being a hero of a uh, uh, bunch of hippies and people and uh, and other uh, layabouts, I think <laughs> he's uh, important in the very important in the history of 20, the 20th century. And um, people who would look, you know, people who look who, who looked inward to their to their uh, their own spiritual life and their own motivations and their their own psychology who wouldn't really normally have done it before and that that's important to the UFO and anomalies community at least I think so so I, I wanted to mark that and 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 mention it duly noted and, and now duly noted here in the year in review all right it works well here because the next one we're going to turn over to Nick and that's one that I could have sworn this story's broken into the news like six different times in the last three years but uh, again it was news in the middle of May, and that was UK UFO files released. How many times are they going to release these files? Because <laughs> I've heard this story like a hundred times, it seems, like I said, over and over again. So uh, please yeah. clear this up. Well, this is actually a really weird story, Tim, and I'll tell you for why. The media have been up in arms in the US, in the UK, everywhere, about the fact that the British government is declassifying these UFO files. Um, and, of course, inevitably, within the UFO research community, this has led to the old, tired, yawn, yawn claims, oh, they're releasing these files to prepare us for the truth. You know, the idea that we'll put a few files out, we'll put a few more files out, and people are going to get used to the idea. Then when one day when Barack Obama or whoever stands up and says, hey, you know, now we've decided to tell the truth, and everybody said, oh, well, we knew that because we've seen all this, been exposed to all this stuff over the years. That's kind of what the approach has been. And, you know, it's been perceived by the media as this extraordinary thing that the British government is releasing all these files. But what's actually a lot of people don't know is that when I lived back in England, I used to go down to the National Archives just outside of London at a place called Kew. And every year from 1993, which is almost 16 years ago, the Ministry of Defence released hundreds and hundreds of pages into the public domain on UFOs, literally hundreds of pages, you know, three, four, five-inch thick files every single January. But that was never news. What's happened is that in the last few years, Britain introduced the Freedom of Information Act. And the Freedom of Information Act has allowed UFO researchers to apply for files from more recent years, where prior to the creation of the, the Freedom of Information Act in England, you had to wait for 30 years Oh, wow. The files to be released. So when I used to go down in 93, 94, I would be able to access the 63 and 64 files. Yeah. But they were equally as interesting, full of military reports, police reports, public reports from that period. The only difference now is we're getting a lot more files because they're more up to date. You know, we haven't got to wait 30 years. We can just get them all in one big, huge bulk mass, if you like. And... People haven't realized this, that these files have been surfacing for years. They think it's a new thing. It's just that the Freedom of Information Act is a new thing. Now, one of the issues that kind of puts a dent in the whole conspiracy angle is that, by, and this is a, a verifiable fact, that the Freedom of Information offices 
have been inundated with requests for UFO data. In fact, it's the most popular subject for freedom of information requests for the British government. If you look into the background, what you actually find is that the Ministry of Defence is heartily sick of having to deal with dozens and dozens, literally, of freedom of information requests for UFO files. And they've basically said, you know what, we're done. Let's just put all the files out there and all you UFO researchers, leave us the hell alone because we just don't have the time to deal with all your freedom of information requests for UFO material. Instead, we're going to put it all out there for you. And, of course, that has then led to certain people in the UFO field to say, aha, they're putting it all out to prepare us for the truth. I think they're actually putting it all out because they just cannot deal. They don't have the people and the manpower and the time to deal with the paperwork that is required to handle all the hundreds of requests that are coming in every year <laughs> for UFO material. It's easier just to put it all out. All right, yeah. Well, thank you for clearing that up because, as I said, it gets frustrating every time, every, like, six months I, I see that they're releasing UFO files in the U.K., and it's like, wait a minute, what? I'm, it's like Groundhog Day here. Um, hey, Nick, can I ask you something? Yeah. In all these files that have been released, is it, is it like the American files where a lot of things are blacked out? And two, does it tell researchers anything new, really important? Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, in the British files, primarily what's blacked out is the witness names and addresses, or at least the, the addresses. Now, in the earlier files from the 90s, they, they didn't even bother blacking those names out. In one or two cases, um, I wrote the names of addresses down and... And some of the people actually still live in those addresses and said, you know, how on earth did you find out? That's well, the Ministry of Defence has declassified the file on your case and left your name and address on there. Um, but today they blank out the names and addresses. They sometimes blank out the intelligence offices, the specific division names that they send the reports to. But at the end of the day, the most important thing in answer to Greg's second part is, no, they don't really tell us anything more about the subject. What they tell us is that primarily... The Ministry of Defence received a lot of lights in the sky reports from members of the public. They received a few intriguing police reports, and they actually did receive every year uh, a handful at least of very intriguing military reports, radar reports, pilot encounters, where something clearly occurred, but maybe the Ministry of Defence received the reports two or three days later, or in some cases worse than that, you know, a week or two later, and said, well, you know, it, they didn't attack us, didn't destroy us, whatever it was. It's kind of like a ghost. It vanished. There isn't a great deal we can do other than just put it in a filing cabinet and <laughs> hope nothing happens. And we see really a picture of a lot of material going into the Ministry of Defence. And when they read it, it's more a case of instead of hiding it under some big conspiratorial banner, they're mystified and don't really know what to do with it. So they file it away, and then 10 years later it gets released. All right, there you go. Thank you for jumping in there, Greg. I appreciate that. If you have any, feel free to ask questions. If I... <laughs> well, it's something I no, wanted no. to know, and Nick's right here. Oh, I know. No, I wasn't I wasn't, even, I wasn't being sarcastic. I was, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm it serious. might be something on people's minds when they're listening, too. It's like, well, they're releasing stuff. Or, you know, is, is, is it helpful? Is it, you know, apparently not. I mean, it just seems to reinforce our, our opinion that the government doesn't really know that very much more than we do, but they're interested. Yeah. yeah. They're interested, and they've got a lot of reports, but I'm not sure they've got a lot more answers than we do. Yeah. Yeah. British government, anyway. I, mean, I have the same opinion about the American government to some extent. 
Um, and then the next story is almost the same in the same vein, but I'm going to take a little different twist on this one. Um, that's the Vatican saying that aliens could exist, that it was okay for, I don't know, for Christians to believe that or something. Um, and that was big news around the middle of May. And uh, same sort of scenario where I could have sworn this story came out like two years ago, but maybe it was UFOs and not aliens or something. Nick, you said, you know, like when the UK released these UFO files that a lot of people in ufology sort of probably misinterpreted uh, what was going on there. Uh, what's your interpretation of what's going on in this instance with the Vatican saying that it's okay for people to believe in aliens? Because that's a little bit of a different situation. I don't think that it's no freedom of information or anything, obviously, with the Vatican. They, for some reason, they decided to make this this announcement. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I kind of get angry about things like this. As somebody telling me it's okay for me to believe in something, it's like, well, <laughs> I want to believe in it. I don't need your permission to say it's okay. <laughs> you know, that's one of the big problems I have with organized religion is that it's all based around control through fear and guilt and them making proclamations and, you know, oh, it's okay to believe in aliens. It's like, well, well, thanks for letting me, you know, make my mind up for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Basically, I don't think anyone, it, you know, it may be in the media at least, it may be a big story that the Vatican says it's okay to believe in aliens. My my view is big deal. You know, who are they? Yeah. You know, to me, it's, they're nothing. It, they're people who believe something. Um. You know, you have you have Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, whatever, who believe something. You have atheists who believe nothing, and and they're all, you know, who knows what the truth is. But you know, the idea that, from from my perspective, the idea that some organised religious body should say it's okay to believe this that doesn't mean anything to me at all. It's like I don't care because I'm going to make my own be my own conclusions regardless of, of what they say and that's what that's what everybody should do nobody should be told by some quote higher body you know who pontificates that it's okay now to believe in this or that so. but let me ask you though to speculate on the motivation behind the behind mm. the proclamation i sound like jesse jackson well, here but <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i would admit you know that that is going to cause intrigue within the ufo community the idea that is does a body like this have some sort of higher motivation, you know, are strings being pulled in the background to prepare people again? You know, it's, we can speculate. I mean, I understand why people think of, of that scenario, because it's a scenario that surfaced within ufology before, like when Reagan made his statement about, you know, if aliens existed, would it unite the world? And people are like, uh-huh, he's been briefed. You know, it's, we can speculate on these sorts of things, but a lot of it, you know, there could be some truth there, that there's something higher going on behind the scenes. Equally, it could just be we think that because these are notable organizations or people. What do you think, Greg? What, what, what's your take on this Vatican aliens uh, connection here from the middle of May? Yeah, well, uh, what you said about uh, what was the motivation for it, I think one of the main motivations is there are a lot of people who are devout Catholics who do wait to find out whether that it's okay to believe in something or not, I suppose. And um, the other thing is the Catholic Church is, is losing followers left and right. Um, I think they probably have hundreds of press releases all the time, but this one just, this one seemed to have legs and it went out because it, it was sort of a hot button issue that the, the church usually doesn't deal with. Um, the fact that they would, you know, even say something about it to, to me just shows that they, they were trying to get attention for a, for, 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 for an issue to get themselves on, on the map. 
I suppose, in some way. Um, but, yeah, you know, like Nick said, it's not – people shouldn't have to be told what to believe in um, and that it's safe to believe in, you know, believe in. You know, here's, here's that word. I mean, you're believing in their, their thing, the, the Catholic uh, reality tunnel. So they wanted to include the alien UFO extraterrestrial reality tunnel in there to sort of get the – you know, toll hold a little bit in, the, in in that community and not push those people away. I suppose it, it it just seemed to me it seemed like kind of a desperate move. Interesting. Okay, so you don't foresee it as any sort of preparation type situation because everyone's always like you know with the Robertson panel and and you know uh, people who always say why disclosure probably won't happen or might not happen. They're always like, well, the religions would go crazy, and then you know when this happened, people thought that. You know, they're preparing us, that kind of thing. So you're not a, you're not a pre preparation advocate. No, because I don't think that people are being really being prepared for anything. I, I mean, if you, to my mind, and it could be wiped out in one press release or event or whatever. But to my mind, there's there's nothing really to um, there, there's nothing really to reveal except for a, a loss of control, and that that's not going to happen. I mean, this, this stuff is here. We know it's here. There's nothing we can do about it. That's not going to be admitted, not anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, if, if there is something behind the UFO enigma that is is uh, does have a single mind behind it or civilization behind it or group of civilizations, um, as Nick has said before, it's it's up to them to make that decision. The decision to, to, to reveal itself is not in our hands. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, the next... We already kind of talked about the UN story, which was sort of a tepid, a tepid fiasco. But I think the next story may be uh, second only to the Bigfoot body bonanza of mid-August as the big fiasco of 2008. And this was the alien video from Jeff, <laughs> exactly, from Jeff Peckman, uh, or as I like to call it, Peckmania. It really sort of uh, went crazy. Somehow this guy ended up on Letterman. Um, I'm still getting emails from him, even though I'm, I'm in part of some kind of group, I guess, with him, because I still see Jeff Peckman emails from him. So I'm not sure he's still a fixture of the UFO community, but I'm a little confused about what happened there with the whole alien video. To be honest, when it kind of began to take off and I just looked, I just walked away from it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask well, what did you think about it, Greg, with the alien video and, and Pac-Mania? Well, is he, is, who was the guy that he was getting the video from? The guy that had all the visitations at his house? What was the guy's name? Oh, you know, I don't know. I'm gonna, I'll call up the story here while. while yeah, I'm, I'm looking up at it too. But yeah, well, I'll talk while you look that up. Um, there was a guy that said that he had alien visitations at his house for like years or something, or. And then he, he had a page that had, you know, blurry pictures of something that looked like aliens running through his house or what we think aliens are supposed to look like. Um, the funny thing is that uh, people, uh, you know, they thought that Peckman was just, uh, you know, somebody seeking attention or whatever. The thing is that he's he's been involved with uh, disclosure and alien stuff for quite a while. He actually uh, tried to introduce a... Um, a bill or a, a proclamation or something in the Denver City Council to uh, create a commission to uh, welcome aliens when they arrive. Yeah, yeah. So everybody thought he was nuts to begin with, and then he gets associated with this guy with his videos and um, says this is a real video of an alien looking in somebody's window. And 
you know, the only people that, that looked at that video and said, well, look, it's an alien looking at somebody's window are people that believe every single one of those videos. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As far as I could tell, everybody else I talked to, every person that saw it said, that's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. It looks like a, it looks like a, you know, it looks like a puppet head looking through the window. And it just pops up for a second, too, like a split second. And it's just the top, too. It's not like a whole head. It's <laughs> <laughs> just appearing over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is this? It's an alien. It should come through the wall. It should float in front of the window. It should shut the camera off. All the things that you think that aliens do. No, it just pokes its head up from the window, and that, that, that's evidence. Yeah. Um, it was a strange thing. And, and, and did, did anything – I'm, like, even confused by just what became of this whole thing because it was huge for a little while. What, did everyone just see the video and then – yeah, well, they, they, they did it right. They, they, they announced they had a press conference. They announced it. They said they were going to show it. They showed it to the, the damn city council, I think, in Denver, who must be really tired of Jeff Beckman by now. Um, and there was this huge buildup, and, you know, this is going to be it. And, of course, when they show the video, uh, the city council were probably, you know, so embarrassed they wanted to hide their faces. And, no, you know, nobody believed it. And they, they were going to get a big video deal with it and everything. And it, it, I think that all fell apart. Or if it didn't fall apart, there's, you know, the only people who are going to buy it are, you know, college students who are drunk to laugh at and true believers. <laughs> That's one of you. But I did think it was really funny. I mean, I, I enjoy I enjoyed the theater of it. Absolutely. Well, it was strange. Like I said, this guy ended up on Letterman and stuff. And uh, I'd like to. I must. I'll have to try and have Peckman on sometime in the future to find out uh, if he's distanced himself from this whole story or if he's still a part of it, or if he regrets it or what. Because it sounds like it was a huge fizzling out of of something like you said, and it was wicked hyped. Like the the news, like I sent you from Fox News. So I mean, if you can't trust them, who can you trust? <laughs> so you know the, the, we report you you decide you we report based on the information we have gathered in in a way that'll make you believe a certain way absolutely so yeah the alien video it was uh it, it'll always be remembered as one of 2008's low lights and uh who'll forget the alien video but there is no, a i didn't forget it I, I i like i said i really i just really enjoyed the whole stupid theater of it yeah that's kind of the only way you could really look at it because like i said nothing ever came of it and then it was overhyped and then you heard about it and then it was like oh geez oh man what's very this guy? similar to the bigfoot thing now did you ever see letterman uh this guy peckman on letterman i never saw it i, I tried to no i didn't see it I, uh, i'll have to dig it up on youtube or something i mean i, I was interested because i thought it was funny but not so much i think i just forgot to tivo it or something and i really wanted to see it and then i realized it had already been on and i kicked myself yeah well i'll take a look and check and see if i can find it and uh send you guys the stuff but yeah it was a weird uh and i was kind of like nick in a way too because uh once the story happened I kind of backed away from it, too, uh, but it was kind of weird. Uh, it was the year of the press conference, too, as we'll get to in the great Bigfoot body bonanza, which I quite I, – I really enjoyed that more than anything this year, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. The next big event that sort of stretched out over the course of a few months that's uh, right in Nick's wheelhouse, in a way, is this U.K. UFO flap. I would qualify it as a flap, and I think Nick probably would, too. It seemed like there was a lot of UFO sightings in the U.K. this summer, whether they were Chinese lanterns or not. Uh, will we ever know? I don't know. But, uh, Nick, I'm sure you have some insight into the U.K. UFO flap of, of the summer of 2008. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of countries, Tim, a lot of places, and a lot of years, it seems to be the case that we have these UFO waves, these UFO flaps, 
um, that concentrates on one particular area or one country or, you know, maybe it's around the world just in one specific period. And certainly that was the case with, with Britain in the summer of 2008. And, you know, I'm, I'm always in two minds when flap situations occur as to what's actually going on. Is it the fact that there are more UFOs being seen or is it that there's initial, an initial kickstart from the media that it gets splashed across the papers then everybody's looking in the skies and maybe they are seeing genuine UFOs but before they just didn't think to look up. Yeah. So, you know, is it the case that we're actually seeing more or is it the wind, sorry, is it the case that there's more there or is it that we're noticing them more because it's been brought to our attention? And of course, I think there's also the issue of, you know, when a flap situation occurs that inevitably there are going to be more misidentifications as well because people are pumped up and, and looking for things. So, you know, that's not to wear a sceptical hat by any means, but it's, it's trying to look at it in a grounded fashion that a flap may not just be due to the fact that there are more UFOs. And I think one of the important things that a lot of people don't always take into consideration is that sometimes I think people who see UFOs feel more comfortable about coming forward when they know other people have already reported their sightings. They don't feel alone and isolated. And so, you know, maybe if the flap situation hadn't been reported, a lot of the people that summer wouldn't have had the, got the will to come forward. They would have just stayed quiet. So, you know, and then we have to wonder, well, are they staying quiet the rest of the year when there isn't a flap on? If they are staying quiet, then arguably it isn't a flap. It's just more people talking about their sightings. That's true. Yeah, I didn't think so, about that way. Yeah, so, you know, I think it was an interesting wave of sightings, but I think from a sociological perspective, it would be good to see a lot of research done on what the actual nature of a flap or a wave is and what constitutes a flap or a wave. Yeah. Now, to well, and maybe the time of year, too, because it's, it was the summer and more people were out at, out at night then. Well, everybody sits outside at the pubs in England in the summer as well, That's and you're looking up at the sky. So, you know, the more people, the more people are outside, the more people are going to see things. And to sort of uh, take a question that Greg had earlier about the UK UFO files and apply it to the to the UK UFO flap, mm. did anything did anything of substance come out of this, or was it just another series of UFO mm. sightings? Did we get anything yeah. out of this that we can hold on to tangible? I'm not talking about the toilet from a UFO, but, you know, a key case or a good yeah. sighting or good evidence in, you know, of, of some fashion or form? Well, you know, there was this one, there was a helicopter sighting over Wales that was described as a mystery aircraft, almost at a close encounter with a police helicopter. Other people then said, well, you know, it was just a small, very small object. Others said, well, we're pressing to get files released and there's more to the story. You know, I don't, I'm not sure where that one's all going to lead. You know, there's still things going on. But overall, unfortunately, you know, we've got more reports. What we don't have are more answers. Okay, yeah, that's the story of ufology, it seems. Mm. All right, the next big event, uh, I don't have a precise date for this one, but I know what happened in the summer of 2008, and that's the Needles UFO crash. And I use UFO crash in quotes because it's still sort of an unsolved mystery of sorts. Did either of you guys investigate this or look into it when it happened or, or the subsequent brouhaha that's sort of slowly developing uh, over the last few months. It happened in June, and I, I believe, May or June, and I put up a, uh, 
a um, post about it linking to Linda Howe's site because she had, you know, she had actually, I think, talked to some of the people and witnesses. Um, what it was, if people don't know, was uh, I think around three in the morning near Needles, which is actually near where the Laughlin UFO conference is, probably about I don't know, 30 or 4 miles, 30 or 40 miles south of there. Um, uh, this is a town that's right on the Colorado River at the border of Arizona and, and uh, California. In Nevada, it has a piece that sticks way down into into that area too. Um, so it's kind of at the confluence of those three states. Um, this guy was um, on his houseboat on the Colorado River at three in the morning, and he said he saw this big turquoise-colored thing. He said it was the size of a uh, semi truck. Um, that kind of size, it was kind of oval. He said it was a bright turquoise glowing, came falling down through the sky and, and crashed into the ground across the river from him. Um, he was startled, you know, certainly, and he, uh, he said he waited for, uh, and to see what was going to happen. And within a few minutes, literally, I think like within 10 minutes, a bunch of helicopters came, um, some flying over his houseboat and shining a light down on him. And uh, trucks came, they loaded the thing on the trucks and left. And the helicopter stayed around until they, everybody had left, and then it, it, it took off, too. And, oh, no, no, they, they, that's it. They, they, they loaded the biggest piece on, underneath a helicopter and tied it up and, and flew it back. That's right, because you remembered seeing the thing flying back to the northwest, which is towards Nellis Air Force Base, Area 51, all that. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Within the next few days, there were uh, other people in town said that there were um, government trucks driving around, things driving around with, with uh, covers over them, um, which could be anything, I suppose, uh, and uh, military types, I guess, skulking around, looking at watching people and asking a few questions. I think one went to a UFO meeting or something or some sort of community meeting around there. And uh, since then, I think the point man on this story has been actually been George Knapp, the uh, TV reporter from Las Vegas. And uh, since then, since the initial uh, uh, report, there hasn't really been any other information, although somebody did point me to a, uh, a video online of a guy uh, supposedly, I guess, living near the area who had found a piece of something he said that might have been from the crash and it, it's just a close-up of this piece of metal and, he, and it's metallic he keeps uh, he keeps putting a piece of metal on it and sh showing that it sticks but you don't see the guy's face the guy never identifies who he is you don't know what the piece of metal is you don't know what the provenance of the video is so you know that's kind of following the script but you know it, when I first saw this I thought hey this is uh, probably another one of those I'm, just, I'm certain if this is as it's reported one of those uh, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles that they've been uh, that's that's tested every once in a while, whether it be anti gravity or whatever you want to call it, or maybe it's something that fell out of space that was being tested. I don't know, but since there were helicopters there right away, you you knew you know somebody was tracking it and knew and and probably knew what it was. So you know, I tend to believe that it's uh, some kind of some kind of secret aircraft or or a spacecraft. Um, I don't know what would be the size of a semi truck and glowing turquoise blue, but <laughs> that, that, that's what the story was. It, you know, it's a fascinating story. It'll probably never go anywhere, and I don't think we'll ever hear 
too much more about it, although George Knapp may have uh, more to say on it than, than than I do from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. It seems like I said it's been kind of brewing subtly, so uh, it may it may smolder out or, or something new may come out of it. Why does it always seem like UFOs crash in the middle of nowhere? We could use one just to, you know, crash in the middle of Boston or something. So but that's not allowed in ufology. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, not allowed. I think, you know, probably the majority of these things are, are you know, and this is just a theory, is, is what I said. They're, they're uh, unconventional aerial platforms that are being tested and some kind of somehow go awry. And where are these things tested? They're generally tested out in the middle of nowhere where nobody's watching. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of... What I was thinking as I was formulating the statement there, uh, that that's probably why that happens, because they're not really UFOs in the in the alien sense, but... Uh, or unknown, anyway. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm continuing my, my incredible uh, uh, crusade to have people have not say that UFO equals alien. <laughs> well... <laughs> a lot of people are doing that. Uh, I know it's a it's an ongoing battle, <laughs> and uh, the next event uh, is it should be a life lesson to everybody in Esoterica, and that was the 100th anniversary of the Tunguska event. So for all those people that are hanging on for answers and are certain that some secret mystery of the Esoteric, whether it be UFOs or Bigfoot, will be solved in their lifetime, just. Uh, just remember that Tagonska celebrated its 100th anniversary this year, and there's a good chance you may be shit out of luck if you're trying to get answers to any of these mysteries. And Tagonska is the is the primary example, I guess, for as the 100th anniversary. Did we ever really find out what happened with Tagonska? And uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it and butchering it. And, wow. and, and I... <laughs> Tagonska. Nick did a whole presentation on this at the Crash Retrieval Conference. Well, that's perfect because uh, we'll 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 turn to him first on on the 100th anniversary of the uh, the event there in Russia. <laughs> well, the the Tunguska case uh, is a perfect example, I think, of one of the biggest pitfalls of of ufology. Tunguska, for those who are unacquainted with it, I'm sure there aren't many listening who aren't unaware of what happened. Uh, I think I said that right, anyway. <laughs> um, was this weird event in Tunguska, Russia, in the summer of 1908, where something exploded above Tunguska, created this huge um, wave, which just flattened trees in every direction, just laid them out like hundreds of matchsticks. And, of course, there have been countless theories put forward. Black holes, comets, meteorites, a malfunctioning UFO, secret experiments by Nikola Tesla and, and time travelers and, and several other theories as well. Now, I gave a lecture on this at the um, annual crash, the crash retrieval, UFO crash retrieval conference that Ryan Wood puts on um, every November in Las Vegas. And uh, in between losing on the, uh, the tables and the slot machines and giving away $20 bills to strippers, I gave a lecture. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and during the course of the lecture, you know, I discussed all these different theories. Um, and, you know, I think there are a few anomalies to the case that don't necessarily mean we can just write it off as an astronomical event. You know, it could well be that that's what it was. I think there are a few things. For example, newspaper reports talked about some of the witnesses seeing a cylinder in the sky rather than, you know, just a plume of smoke or whatever. 
And it doesn't appear to be the case that this was just a mistranslation. It seems to be that's what they were talking about. So, you know, the problem is that like many cases, and I have to say even perhaps like Roswell, the problem with Tunguskin that frustrates a lot of people in the UFO field is that we're unlikely ever to know the real truth. And, of course, the one thing we all crave with respect to the UFO subject is to know what actually is going on. And I think Tunguska is a prime example of how, in many respects, we don't know the truth and we may never know the truth. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people view that as defeatist. I don't. I think it's been realistic to think that a 100-year-old case or a 60-year-old case is going to defy explanation unless the government says what really happened in the case of maybe Roswell. In the case of Tunguska, I seriously doubt anyone in government has any more knowledge than we do. But Tunguska was definitely a weird event. It celebrated its 100th anniversary, which, you know, made it a talking point. And I think it was a talking point because it's unexplained. And as I've made this parallel before, it's exactly the same when in England in 1988, Jack the Ripper was a huge talking point because it was the 100th anniversary of the Whitechapel killings and nobody knows really who Jack the Ripper was. So I think that's the case with Tunguska. It's an intriguing mystery. We don't know the answer. It attracts controversy and that's that's unfortunately where we're at. And and sadly, I don't really think, unless something really out of the blue occurred, that we're going to get beyond that point now. Yeah, yeah. Seems like the book's closed a little bit on Tunguska. What about you, Greg? Do you have anything to say about that? I know the Tunguska event's been a fixture of esoterica now for 100 years, so maybe you have some insight into the event. Uh, not much more than Nick had. I, I, you know what? I, like I, I'm, I'm satisfied to leave it in the unexplained, unknown uh, column. It's, it's, it's something I read about when I, you know, I, I started reading about uh, anomalies when I was like, you know, five years old or six or something like that. It was one of the first things I, I read about, and I haven't read anything new on it since then. Yeah, exactly. Fine. I mean, it's it's just one of those anomalies, and there's there's you know the there's been ex- expeditions out there to see what you know see if they could find anything, and uh, maybe Nick would know better, but I don't think they ever found really anything of yeah. note. All they found was a bunch of trees that had been knocked over. I mean, it, it's yeah. there's still a bunch of knocked over trees there, but it's in the tundra of of, of Siberia. So it's uh, kind of an inaccessible area, and you'd think it would preserve any kind of fragments or whatever, but I don't think they really ever found anything of note. And, uh, you know, I, uh, <laughs> why, didn't, why doesn't it happen over a large city? I don't know, but I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> and then uh, the next question I have here, it's in my notes. It's, I, it didn't get sent to you guys because I just sort of thought of it as a smart-ass joke. Um, but uh, 40 years from now, do you think you'll be around to see the 100th anniversary of Roswell? And what do you think uh, the scene will be like then? Not so much ufology, but the Roswell mystery. Will it be in the same shape as Tunguska? Um, I don't think I'll be around in 40 years. I've lived a far too unhealthy life to, <laughs> <laughs> to, reach, uh, to reach that age. Um, sadly, yeah, I think unless, unless the government decides to release something on Roswell, I think we'll be talking about Roswell in the same way that, as I said, in 1988, all the British newspapers and the bookshelves were full of 100th anniversary books on Jack the Ripper. Tunguska's the big news, relatively, I guess, this year. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's honestly not looking at it from a defeatist, pessimistic angle. I just think with Roswell, pretty much everybody's dead. Ten years from now, they will all be dead. Um, the government says 
stands by its mogul balloon and crash test dummy scenario. We don't have files that suggest anything to the contrary. Ironically, the government doesn't even have mogul files to support its argument. Nobody has files. Um, and when everybody's gone, unless there is like a cache of files somewhere that are being hidden and that one day, either by accident, design, or that they're leaked, that we get hold of them, we, ju we literally are just 100 years from now going to be analyzing what Jesse Marcel told somebody in 1981 or whatever. Yeah. You know, we're just going to be going over the conversation, trying to determine little nuances in the sentences and so on. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, sadly, I think that's where we'll be. All right. That, I wanted a fair answer, and I, that's where we get. And I'll be 70 at the Roswell 100th. I'll try and make it out there, folks, although I can't guarantee I'll be around 40 years, but I'll be about 70. Greg, what about you? Will I be seeing you there at the Roswell 100th? I plan to be alive then. <laughs> you know what? The, 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 there's been advances in gerontology. I'm sure there's there's going to be ways to take a pill and you know increase people's lifespan to 100 or 150 years or whatever. We by then, my liver to uh, full working order. Oh yeah, or, or, or just give you an, grow you another liver. Yeah. Um, sure, you'll be there when you're 70. Jim Mosley was. Well, that's true. At the uh, 90 at the 50th anniversary. I don't know if he was 70 yet, but he was, yeah, he's past 70. Yeah, I, I agree with Nick. It's, I think it is, um, unless, unless the, uh, governments, the, our government, this government in the United States decides to say something about it, people are going to be speculating about it then. Um, there'll probably be so many other events and things in between then and now that uh, it will, it might have been forgotten. It'll probably just be another, you know, as long if the UFO thing isn't quote-unquote solved by then, I think it's just going to be another uh, event if remembered more as a cultural event than, a, than, a, than really a UFO event, at least in the public mind. So, yeah, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of hope that anything's going to change anytime soon or in... in, in uh, uh, before, you know, 2047. <laughs> yeah, do you want to? So what, you know? We'll be like legends at the 100th anniversary of Roswell. <laughs> we'll have been in this for like, you guys will have been in this for like 50 years. I'll have been in for 40, so. Yeah, and I'll, 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 I'll float in my, on my anti-grav shoes, you know. <laughs> Um, Maybe we'll all be rejuvenated by then, and nothing will change. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I plan to have them grow me an entirely new body for my DNA, so I'll be fine. <laughs> nice. All right, we're halfway through the year here. We've closed the book on uh, January through June. That does it for part one of our 2008 year in review with Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern. Come on back on Friday or so to pick up part two, where we're going to delve into, of course, the latter half of 2008 and what's hot and what's not going into 2009. I'll have more of a preview of that at the end of the program. Just to run down the list here of the websites to check out, Nick Redfern's site, of course, nickredfern.com, very simple. Greg Bishop's is excludedmiddle.com or Radio Mysterioso. And collectively, they post at ufomystic.com, ufomystic.com. Check that out for daily updates of amazing UFO news. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. We're going international once again. We're hearing from our friend Jerry in Ireland. Why is he our friend? You'll find out after I wrap up his email. Here's what Jerry has to say. Dear Tim, just a quick note to say thank you for the Gian Cassar Into the Bermuda Triangle interview, one of my all-time favorite mysteries. 
Great stuff. And thank you for BOA in general. Great to hear an interviewer who lets the guest talk without constantly interrupting. Love it. Jerry in Ireland. Thank you very much, Jerry. I appreciate the props on the show. Kind of what I was going for there with the Gian Kassar interview. So many people love the Bermuda Triangle, but never really hear anything about it anymore. And that's why we did the double episode with Gian, who is, of course, the foremost authority in the world on the infamous Triangle. We did get one email from someone who was outraged by the Gian Kassar interview. We'll read her email on the Part 2 section of this year in review, so we'll sort of balance out the views. The reason I call Jerry a good friend of BOA is because he's done something really cool with some of our best episodes. He's taken them and posted them over on YouTube. I've only checked out a few of them. There's several up there now, though. I know Jacques Vallée one is, Linda Molden Howe is, I think Gian Cassar is. But he's doing a great job putting awesome BOA audio episodes up on YouTube for folks who would rather go that route as far as getting their esoteric media. How do you find those? Just go to YouTube, punch in Banal, then you'll find at the very least one of Jerry's, and you can dive in from there. He's doing an awesome job with those, something I would love to do if I had the time. And thankfully, Jerry's come along to really pick up the slack and produce some cool stuff using the BOA Audio archive. And as always, he's a friend of BOA because he's an international listener. You know I love those international listeners, and they go to the top of the heap in the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. So, Jerry, thanks for writing in. Hope you dig this year in ufology episode of BOA Audio and come on back Friday for the next episode and then late January when BOA Audio resumes airing. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, now's the time to write in because we're going to be stockpiling these letters for our post-January hiatus episodes. Here's how you get a hold of me. Either go to Banal of America and click the contact button, that's pretty simple, or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, equally simple. And the third option is a little more interactive. Join up at the official Banal of America forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Totally free, great community there. Check it out. You know what's next. It's the thanks portion of the show. Let's roll down the list here of the amazing BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. They are the seven horsemen of Banal of America. We're going to be bringing in a few more staff writers coming up here in 2009. Stay tuned to Been All of America for that. They do a fantastic job putting out thought-provoking esoteric columns throughout the weekdays here at Been All of America. Definitely want to check those out. As we say, week in and week out, if you're only listening to BOA Audio, you're only getting half the story. you got to check out the columns at Been All of America from the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. BinAllOfAmerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L-OfAmerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Here in the donation segment of the show, I want to give a big thanks to all the folks who answered our call for a secret Santa over the holiday season. We did really well on donations, and I appreciate it. For those folks who forgot or just simply procrastinated, you can always make a donation to Binall of America via clicking the PayPal button at BOA. Pretty simple stuff. They'll take you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping Banal of America up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Not too much to preview here. You know what's coming up on Friday with the second half of our 2008 Year in Ufology featuring Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern. Just to run down the list of some of the stuff we're going to be talking about, it's July to December of 2008 and into 2009. We're going to dissect the Edgar Mitchell UFO disclosure 
non-story. The infamous Bigfoot Body Bonanza of mid-August, probably the biggest esoteric story of the year. Blossom Goodchild's UFO non-event from October. The election of Barack Obama and the subsequent UFO disclosure push that's been ongoing since November. And the Folding of Alien Worlds magazine in December. Plus, we're going to remember Eric Beckyord and Monsignor Corrado Balducci, both of whom passed away this past year. And closing out the discussion, we're going to reflect on what's hot and what's not as 2008 closes, and what genres may be on the rise as 2009 unfolds. I'll definitely say, as I noted at the beginning, I was a little off-kilter starting things out with a double guess, but as you'll hear in Part 2, things get looser and looser as the time goes by, and by the end of that three-hour conversation, this thing's just broken down into a slobber knocker that I think you're really going to enjoy. That's coming to you Friday at BinallofAmerica.com. Check it out at the website. Until then, this is Tim Binall, wishing you all a very happy new year, and signing off.